Today's show is brought to you in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. In appreciation of our guests' participation, we have made a contribution to the following organization on their behalf. Hope Ethiopia, an international organization working in Ethiopia and Rwanda to bring hope to lives and the restoration of the environment. For more information, check us out at hopeethiopia.com. So we build spaceships because we want to go explore the solar system. We want to go and understand and unlock all of these questions that scientists have been asking themselves since the beginning of time, right? I mean, you look at it in mythology and in the stories handed from different civilizations and around the world, and it all is central to where we came from. What is space? What do the stars mean? And so all of that is what I use to bring in all the day-to-day experience of what it means to build a spaceship. If I build a spaceship, would you go to Mars with me? Go that far with me? If I take you places that you've never been before, would you stay for long? Three, two, one. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, we'll be speaking with Ethiopian-Canadian singer Ruth B. about her new song, Spaceship. Spaceship's opening lyric asks, if I built a spaceship, would you go to Mars with me? And today, with the help of our guest scientist, we hope to find out what level of commitment that might entail for Ruth. And from NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California, we are very fortunate to have with us payload systems engineer, Christina Hernandez. Christina has worked extensively on the latest Mars rover's design, launch, and monitoring. Her projects at JPL have included space debris risk assessments for spacecraft and designing instruments capable of taking measurements on the surface of Mars. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is Spaceship, Aerospace Engineering and Life on Mars. Hi, Ruth and Christina. Thanks so much for joining me. Of course. Thanks for having us. It's cool. Yeah, I'm super excited. And Ruth, I love your song. Thank you. I'm glad. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, Ruth, you have one of the most enchanting voices I've ever heard, and I'm, I'm so happy that I got hipped to your music and that we're doing this show. Thank you. And so I'm learning more about how we got to where we are today. Your career kind of blew up overnight when you were still a teenager. Could you tell me how that happened and what it was like to be at the center of that experience? Yeah. Um, so I, I pretty much like growing up, I'd always loved music. I loved creating. I, I played piano ever since I was like eight. I didn't really like see it being a realistic option, I guess, as like a career, just where I'm from. And like, I don't know, it just didn't seem like possible. But it was really thanks to this social media app at the time called Vine. I just started posting like these six second covers that eventually started to go viral and blow up. And I ended up writing my first song called Lost Boy, thanks to that. And that was about five years ago. So it kind of, it happened really fast, honestly. So I'd imagine that was pretty exciting. It was. It was really exciting, at times daunting, but it's definitely a wild ride. And I've just, I've really, I think, fallen in love more with the art of creating music and writing and all of that. So uh, yeah, it's been great. I was hoping we could talk a little bit about your background. It's so unique. Both your parents emigrated from Ethiopia to Canada 
and met up there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we've never had someone from Ethiopia on the show. I'd love to hear anything you'd care to, to share about Ethiopian culture. Yeah, yeah. Both my parents immigrated. I think my dad probably came to Edmonton about 40 years ago now and my mom like 30. They met there. I've been really privileged in the fact that I've been able to go back there uh, about like three times and, you know, visit all my family. It's always so crazy to be in a space where everyone like looks like you and talks like you. And it's, it's weird. I always say, my brother and I always say it's weird to be suddenly become the majority and not the minority. But, um, yeah, I mean, Ethiopia is wonderful. My parents were really adamant about helping us retain the culture and they taught us the language. So we both my brother and I speak fluently. And in our house, my dad would speak English to us and then my mom would speak only Amharic so that we'd get like both. And then we grew up a lot on the music. Both my parents love music and they would always have Ethiopian songs playing in the house. There was a moment where my dad tried to teach me one of the main instruments there. It's called the karat. It's It looks like a guitar, but... How many strings does it have? I want to say like four. It's, I mean, it's a really beautiful instrument. If you actually know how to play it, I have absolutely no idea. I was probably nine when he was just trying to show me how to do it. But yeah, and then like being with other Ethiopian people was always a big part. And obviously, ultimately, like going back there, uh, mm-hmm. we went once when I was three, once when I was 10, and then once when I was like 18 or, or 20 or something like that. So it was like a thing to make sure we, we got back and forth. What I'm digging for here is I'm hoping that you can share with me how to make a decent loaf of injera bread. I love that. <laughs> I'm gluten-free and I've had terrible luck trying to make it. I mean, they sell teff at the local health food store, oh. <laughs> but it just tastes like shit. But the stuff at the Ethiopian restaurant is so good yeah. that I've been to in the city. Yeah. Ethiopian food is incredible. I'm learning. My mom is incredible. Like people come to our house just for my mom's food because it's, it's pretty top-notch homemade is always amazing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love injera. And I guess that's another thing is like, we grew up on the food as well. So it was, yeah, definitely a big part of my childhood and even now. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I want to ask you, and this could be a big reach, but you know, Ethiopia is considered to be the cradle of humankind, given that that's where fossils of our oldest ancestors have been found. Lucy. Right. Lucy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are there any instances in Ethiopian mythology or, or folklore that you know about that point to Ethiopia being the place where human life began, like Garden of Eden stuff? Yeah, I think Lucy's definitely like a big talking point. People always, and when you go back there, they have like museums dedicated to that and whatnot. And yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people say like East Africa is like the beginning of the world. I don't know much about it. I definitely like should like dive more into it, but I think. I just think that's really cool. And there's a lot of like fables and stories like uh, that you hear as well. There are. Yeah. 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 That are passed down. or Yeah. My parents definitely know them more than I do. I, I didn't hear them as much, but like my dad or my grandparents, when I would get back there, like every now and then would just like tell us stories and stuff like that. You were mentioning the music. Did it, did it play? And because one thing I noticed is like, you're such an incredible songwriter. Does anything from the uh, format of Ethiopian music, is it anything that you've incorporated into how you write music now? Yeah, I think Ethiopian music, it's really rich melodically and lyrically as well. There's a lot of storytelling that goes into it as well. And so I never actively thought I was doing that, but I guess subconsciously when you grow up on something, it, it seeps its way into your own process inevitably. So I definitely think just because 
the stories are so like there and in a lot of the music I would hear like a main character, a problem, like a plot and all this stuff. And when I first started writing, a lot of my songs were very like story driven. And I think some of that is derived from just growing up on Ethiopian music. Yeah. The song that got you famous, Lost Boy, I get that in that. And not for nothing, but that mentions the man in the moon being your only friend. So I'm, I'm seeing a, a theme here. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think when I wrote Spaceship, it's kind of funny. I, I might have been like in the same headspace as when I was writing Lost Boy, which was kind of like this like lonely and just like trying to navigate life and trying to figure stuff out. And ever since I was like a kid, I've just always had this fascination with the moon and like outer space. And, and I always used to say that I, I want to go to outer space someday. <laughs> This So the song we're talking about today, Spaceship, how did that come together? I mean, the, the production on it is more organic sounding than some of the other songs on the album. And I want to know if that was like a, a deliberate choice to avoid anything too electronic in space age for, so as to, you know, allow for a contrast or something like that. Yeah, when, when I was writing Spaceship, it just that day felt like magical to me and whimsical. I walked into this a studio with these guys for the first time his name was Homer and he had this like super retro studio I'd never seen anything like it where there was like no computers it was all boards and all like real instruments and everything and I was like this kind of feels like space like this is not the studio I'm used to because you walk into a studio nowadays and it's like you know people like people on their phones and like big screens and stuff but this was just like I felt like I was a beetle or something so he started playing those chords and Inevitably, I, I just like saying, if I built a spaceship, would you go to Mars with me? And he kept, I mean, I think he was hearing what I was singing and the vibe was just right and he knew what to do. So he kept it super uh, just like organic. And I think that just really lent itself to the, the, the lyrics and the message I was trying to convey at the time. Did you cut it that day? You recorded it that day? Yeah, the vocal that you hear on it is the very first time I ever sang the song. Oh, amazing. Like in full, like I wrote it. I probably spent like two hours writing the lyrics and he was like, okay, let's see what you have. I just sang it and we were like, there we go. There's a song. What's his name? His name's Homer and he's, he's uh, based in Brooklyn, has this incredible, he's in a group right now called Holy Hive. Okay. It was just that one session too that we had. It was like one day in and out. and just, Did a great job. Yeah, he's incredible. So as I mentioned in the intro, we have the rare opportunity to get some expert advice about what you talk about in these lyrics. So before we get to hear about how spaceships are, are built, Christina, could I ask you to please tell us about your background and how you became a, an aerospace engineer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I grew up in L.A. I, my parents were from Mexico. They came over here with my grandparents. You know, again, similar story as Ruth, right? Trying to search for more opportunity, looking to, you know, advance the future generations that come. So growing up as a kid as L in L.A., I actually didn't start engineering by like taking things apart and, you know, tinkering. I loved reading actually. And, you know, the the word that you used, Ruth, that really stuck with me is uh, whimsical. I felt reading and exploring by turning a page was this, you know, whimsical introduction to a world that I didn't have access to immediately. And that was the first time I saw a picture of Saturn in a coffee table book in the library. And when I looked at that, I remember distinctly as a kid wondering, how did somebody take a picture of Saturn? Like, 
how? I mean, it, it's so beautiful and huge and perfect. I had never imagined that visual in my mind before. And so I told myself, I want to be somebody who takes pictures of the planets. And so growing up as a kid, it was just curiosity, right? You know, it's trying to understand where you fit in the world and asking questions about it. You know, I used to learn the names of the clouds and I would point to the clouds and tell my mom, oh, well, this is cumulonimbus. This is this. And it was just that natural curiosity and idea that there was so much to learn. And because of that, you know, I learned math and science and math and science, unfortunately, is a barrier, in my opinion, because of how people present it. But to me, math and science is, you know, the tools that you use to try and unlock the curiosities and um, uncharted worlds across the universe. And so I used it that way. I said, I have to learn math and science if going back to the book, I wanted to take a picture of Saturn. And so I just kind of dove into it. I became a total geek and I uh, really embraced that geeky, nerdy culture. I went to a high school where we didn't have a football team. We had a robotics team and that's where all the cool kids. Lucky you. <laughs> I know, exactly. I was like, oh, thank God. If not, I wouldn't have been a cool kid in high school. <laughs> but yeah, so joined the robotics team, learned how to build robots and uh, went to college to study aerospace engineering. Mostly because it had space in the name. I was yeah. like, oh, okay, that must be it. <laughs> and right out of college, you landed a job at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory? Yes, I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which is a local California State University. Did grad school there. And afterwards, JPL was at a career fair. And, you know, apparently my resume screamed geek and space nerd. Hmm. So they gave me a shot at an interview. And I've been at JPL ever since. Amazing. Now, the reason why we're all here, and if the person Ruth is singing to in the song ex expected her to follow through, what would she have to do to build a spaceship from start to finish? So we start with a piece of paper, maybe some Legos, maybe some pipe cleaners, and we creatively try and decide, well, what is a spaceship going to do? Where are we going? Why are we going there? What do we need to bring, right? You can imagine it as going on your own adventure, and so on the Perseverance mission, this mission has been in the works for at least 10 years when scientists and engineers got together to try and figure out what the next Mars mission was going to be. And, and realistically, it was going to be the first step to a future sample return mission. We need to understand Mars and you could only take so much there. So we now decided, well, let's bring some samples back in the future so we can study them here on Earth for decades to come. And so with that paper concept, they handed it to engineers around the world from France, Norway, Spain, Italy, and the U.S., universities across the states. And they said, OK, now figure out how to build this. And that's the best part, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess I'm an engineer in that sense. You know, how do you put the structure together? How do you get the electronic systems, which are basically like the brains and intelligence behind the rover. How does that communicate and tell the rover what to do? And most importantly, how do you build these amazing tools or science instruments that are gonna help answer and unlock those questions? It's a lot of collaborating. 
It's a lot of tough days and good days. But again, it goes back to that goal. Why are you doing this? Well, the Perseverance mission is doing this to look for signs of ancient life on Mars, prepare for humans with some of our science instruments, and understand why Mars got to be the way it is and what does that mean for the Earth. Mm-hmm. You mentioned these electronic instruments, for example. They have to be able to withstand extreme temperatures in all directions and things like this. Are all probabilities accounted for? Are you How often are you surprised by what happens? How often do things not turn out the way that your projections suggested they would? We only know what we don't know, right? We have this thing Mm. called uh, unknown unknowns, right? As we're building, as we're testing here on Earth in preparation for launch and the mission, we're trying to uncover what are the areas that we still don't understand and mitigate generally areas that could lead to issues down the road. Ultimately, though, we also design autonomous behavior on the vehicle or on the rover, on the instruments to help take care of itself, right? So uh, Perseverance, right, when she's exploring the, the surface of Mars, she can take care of herself. She knows if it's too hot, if it's too cold, if she needs to take a nap, right? The rover goes to sleep to conserve energy. And so those things are injected in the design. However, Space is really hard, right? We're still learning about what it takes to build these complex instruments and they're being built by humans, right? And so oftentimes we learn things on the job, Mm -hmm. on Mars, on the way to Mars, and we have to learn to use the tools and the amenities available on the rover to help diagnose the issue and potentially uplink a solution to fix the rover or the instruments or whatever might be going on. So you plan for your worst day on Mars and you hope that you never get it. But if you do, we have the resources and understanding of how the rover and the instruments work so that we can act accordingly. And how long did it take to get the rover there? So Perseverance launched in July of 2020. And she got there in February of 2021. So six to seven month uh, cruise. And you can't control it in real time, can you? So how we talk to the rover or the cruise stage as the rover is en route to Mars, we send it commands. Mm -hmm. And those commands could either adjust the trajectory. It could turn things on and off or do all kinds of functional behaviors. Once we are launched... We use this thing called orbital mechanics, which is how things move around the solar system. And so we use gravity and also momentum from our different thrusters to control the direction that we're going. Okay. But at some point, once we hit the atmosphere of Mars, that's it. That entry, descent, and landing phase as the rover comes down, which is approximately seven minutes, that's all autonomous. So we can't control, we can't speak. All we can see is the data after it had happened. Ruth, you know, next thing up on our list to ask Christina about is the prospect of life on Mars. Now I understand how quickly this song came together, but I'm wondering if any David Bowie figured into it because he was so preoccupied with life on Mars. Are you a fan? Yeah, definitely. A massive Bowie fan. I I mean, who isn't? I think 
his ability to write and capture a moment, but also, yeah, his like fascination with space too was always super cool to me. And yeah, I, I don't know if it played a role in this song, but I just love to listen to Bowie to like get out of get out of my head all the time. Have either of you seen the Flight of the Concords video for Bowie's in Space? Mm-mm. I have not. I, I highly recommend it. It's a satire. It's it's poking fun at his preoccupation with major things like Major Tom and Life on Mars. Anyhow, so um, Christina, what do we know right now about how inhabitable that planet is? So we've been exploring Mars for the last 60 years, either through telescopes or through spacecraft that went to go visit. Mm. And all along, the objective had been is Mars habitable, right? Is there water on Mars, right? You've probably seen this on the news. Scientists are always talking about where's the water. Well, the Curiosity rover, which is Perseverance's predecessor, Mm. discovered and confirmed that there's water on Mars, right? It's not vast oceans like we see here on Earth, but, Mm. you know, there's evidence of almost like trickling water or rocks and minerals that could have only have formed in the presence of water. Mm. And so... Once we made that discovery, the next question is, well, where's the life, right? You know, we know where there's water, there's life at least here on Earth. And so the Perseverance mission is really focused on looking for evidence of ancient life on Mars. Now, we're really looking for almost like fossilized microbes, right? Mm. And so a way to make that sound a lot cooler (laughs) is that, you know, if you think about, you know, you're brushing your teeth, right? If you don't brush your teeth, you get this gross buildup, right? Tartar. It's the same thing with microbes, right? So over time, microbes leave byproducts as a fact of their life processes. And so we've seen evidence of this in on Earth, and it's called stromatolites. So they're these huge mineral structures that you can see in Australia. And it's evidence that life created. It's like a byproduct of life that used to be there, but is no longer there. And so the idea is, is that we're going to take these science instruments like Pixel and Sherlock that basically are spectrometers. So they inject either x-rays or ultraviolet or laser, and they check the response that the rock gives us back, almost like the energy level. And based on that energy level, we can tell if it's an organic, right? So if there's carbon in it, Or we can tell if there are elements that are, you know, most likely present in an area that was habitable. So that's what we're focused on. And the big thing is, is to answer that question of is there life or has there been life on Mars? Even if we could take all the evidence with the instruments that we have on board, we need to bring that rock sample back, right? We have so many great tools and brilliant people here on Earth who would love to study and really confirm, did we find evidence of past life? Mm. And so with our sampling system, we're going to collect over 30 samples across the mission of the Perseverance rover all throughout Mars. And a future sample return mission is going to go and pick them up and bring them back so we can study. And those samples are going to be selected based on what was the most promising. What was the thing that the scientists were like, oh, my gosh, if we do not pick this up, I will riot. Right. You know, we're, we're looking for what's a promising sample of potential past life. So are you going to leave the rover there? 
Yeah, so we can't really bring it back because it's about a one-ton beast of a thing. Okay. Um, so all of our rovers that we've ever sent through the Jet Propulsion Laboratory are still there on Mars. Um, you could think of them as the ancestors who are giving us good luck on our exploration journeys. The Mars Sample Return Mission will actually bring a new rover, and it's a coordinated effort between NASA and the European Space Agency. And that fetch rover is what is going to go uh, zoom around Mars and collect those samples. Do you feel like we'll be able to put an astronaut on Mars in, in our lifetime? Absolutely. I am pro sending people into space. I think, you know, as a human, that experience that you get from being out in space, it's it's interesting because, Ruth, you had mentioned, you know, sometimes there are these moods, right? It's like a dark, moody loneliness that you feel looking out into the stars or looking out into the moon and thinking about space. And while I also feel that, I think when you go into space and you look at the Earth, you get this feeling of humanity, like this is why it's worth fighting for. And so I really hope that by us, either through commercial space exploration, like the stuff that uh, SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic is doing, coupled with the missions that NASA, European Space Agency, the Japanese Space Agency, all of these space agencies around the world will be able to put somebody on Mars and, you know, get a different experience of what it's like to be on two different planets. That's pretty wild. Would you want to go? I really want to go. <laughs> Christina, have you experienced zero gravity? No. <laughs> I would love to. So I'm like, what are all the activities I can do on Earth that will make me feel that weightlessness? I can't even imagine how awesome it feels. Is that something that you'd be interested in doing, Ruth? So I always, I've said that ever since I was younger. Sometimes I'll lay out at night and look at the stars and be like, would I actually do it? Or is that like too scary? But I think, yeah, that would, I mean, it would, it would be incredible to, like you said, to feel that just weightlessness and look around you and see that I think would be incredible. I feel like anytime you're like out out of a city and laying in the grass and you look up, it's always as astonishing. I was out of town this weekend uh, with my boyfriend for my birthday and it was out in the countryside and we like went out at like 2 a.m. and we were just like, what? And we were looking up like different stars and like trying to find different constellations, whatever. But it was just, you just look up and it's it's so magnificent. Yeah, no doubt about it. Christina, how much of Mars have we mapped? In terms of percentage, I'm not sure. However, we have spacecraft that are orbiting the planet, like the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, for example, and it's bringing back super high-res imagery back of the planet. And so we've pretty much aerially have mapped most of it. We have only traversed or, you know, wheels down on the surface mm -hmm mostly around the belly. And mm -hmm. the reason is, is because of the temperatures. So Mars is really, really cold. And so the poles are quite cold and they're uh, limited to what we can do. But the great thing is, is the Perseverance mission test drove this uh, capability called terrain relative navigation. So as the rover was landing, there was an onboard computer that was taking pictures and overlaying it on a map and deciding with intelligence where we should move the rover to. Whoa. And so you can imagine with that type of AI, 
rovers might be able to land in much more difficult positions, um, mm -hmm. like in the polar caps. So what kind of weather extremes do you see on Mars? Yes. So weather is something that we've been studying for the last 60 years. We always send weather sensing instruments um, with our rovers and with our landers. And most of them are from Spain. So the Spanish Space Agency are experts at understanding meteorological data. And so on Mars, you could imagine it's probably like minus... I'm trying to convert between Celsius and Fahrenheit in my head. <laughs> but in Celsius, it gets down to like minus 70 degrees Celsius. And mm. there's this huge diurnal. And what that means is the temperatures kind of fluctuate in almost like a wave. And so that puts a lot of stress on our components. It's like we're bending it back and forth with the stresses caused by those thermal fluctuations. Mm. But... There's also humidity on Mars, right? It's it's very small, but there's clouds on Mars. And we've done this observation with our cameras and our weather uh, sensors. But the coolest thing on Mars are the dust devils. So if you've ever been driving around Arizona, New Mexico, or anywhere in the desert, and you've seen these dust devils, you could imagine yourself on Mars. And we have images that we get down from the rover every Sol or Martian day and we see dust devils in the background. It's pretty surreal. How big are they? Um, they range. Um, so we've seen them about, you know, a couple of meters, okay. but I'm not sure how big they can get. If there's humidity, that means the presence of water is there now, right? Right, exactly. But you don't, you never see it on the surface. It's always just in the atmosphere. So we know that there is water in the clouds, right? So we have clouds on Mars. Mm. We also know that it snows on Mars, but it's different minerals than what you would see here on Earth. And also we know that it's below the subsurface. And so on the Perseverance uh, rover, we have a instrument called RIMFAX. Mm. It's a ground penetrating radar. You can think of it as a camera for what's happening underneath the surface without actually digging and looking yourself. And we know that there's water and ice buried deep, deep down meters well below the surface. Hmm. And so when we've done those analyses with our other orbiters, like MRO, as I mentioned, and we're doing that with the Perseverance rover now too. Does the snow accumulate? It's like flakes, right? It's not like, you know, a Tahoe or something on a great day, right? It's, <laughs> Too you know, bad. we, I know. And there's actually a really cool photo online where they're like these wispy like clouds. Mm -hmm. It's not like the beautiful clouds that you see after a rainstorm here on earth, obviously, but mm. you can see the presence of moisture in the atmosphere. I just wanted to quickly ask, just because you were saying the names of the rovers really stuck out to me, like Curiosity, Perseverance. I was just wondering how, who comes up with them, or are they just kind of like, does everyone have a say? Or Yes, this is a great tradition. We always have a contest so that students in the United States get to submit essays as to what they would want to name the rover. And Alex, he was the one who came up with the Perseverance name. And it was really beautiful, the essay that he wrote, because he reflected on the past names of the rovers, like Spirit, Opportunity, Curiosity. 
And he had said, you can't have those without perseverance. And so that's how he picked the name. And I still get chills uh, thinking about that essay. That's incredible. Yeah, that's so cool. What happens to the rocket when you launch the rover? It becomes space debris. Yeah. (laughs) So the launch vehicle or the rocket, it has multiple stages, right? It's what gives it a boost to go to the next level. And so as we go through those stages, those pieces basically fall back down into Earth. And so we have scientists who work to understand, you know, are those pieces going to break up in the atmosphere Mm -hmm. or go so far into space that we never see them again to keep space clean and to make sure that nothing else gets harmed around the Earth's orbit. Mm. Is it the Fermi paradox? Are you familiar with this? I'm familiar with the Fermi paradox, but by I am no means a physicist. <laughs> One tenet of it says, like, if if there were extraterrestrial life, A, where is everybody? And B, wouldn't they have explored us? And as a result, wouldn't we just be inundated with space debris from their explorations? Oh, interesting. I am not familiar I'll have to look that up. I might be conflating a bunch of different things, but I have to confess I get most of this from sci-fi books. And I read that about you, that you have at Jet Propulsion Labs a sci-fi book club. So I want, could you recommend some? They don't have to be that realistic necessarily, but ones that really did the trick for you. Yes. Uh, So there are two authors that I really resonated with the last few years. So one is N.K. Jemisin. Uh, She wrote the Broken Earth trilogy, and it's not sci-fi, but more speculative fiction, but it does kind of have these sci-fi fantasy elements. Mm -hmm. And it's just beautifully written. And N.K. Jemisin has a great way of bringing in themes of, you know, social justice and making equality and inclusivity and mm. weaving that into a genre which traditionally has not been. Mm. And it's it's fantastic. I haven't read her other books, but the Broken Earth trilogy. Okay. And the one that really stuck through while I was helping with the rover was Becky Chambers. And she has this short novella It's an easy read. It's called To Be Taught If Fortunate. And it follows a astronaut and her team. And and it's it's quite a diverse uh, set of scientists and engineers as they explore the outer solar system, right? Looking for a planet that has life. And it's just so beautiful because it brings in the emotions of what it's like to be a scientist. It's not just this cold, calculated person who loves data. Mm-hmm. Um, well, sometimes we're like that. There's also this sense of like humanity and wanting to explore and wanting to learn about the world around you and the people around you. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it was beautifully written. And when I read that, I said, this is sci-fi. It's not about like space colonization and, you know, the same type of characters over and over again. It's this fresh take on what it is to be a space explorer. Cool. You know, there's a lot of criticism of the world's elite billionaires like Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos who are devoting all these resources on space exploration when we can't properly take care of the people on this planet. And obviously you're a proponent, and and you said it, you know, a proponent of of space exploration and getting people there. What might you say to a, a critic? So when it comes to space exploration, There's many facets and 
the world that space exploration is in, right, with respect to social justice, it's complicated. And, you know, growing up as a kid that wasn't privileged, right, in many ways, but also growing up as a kid who was privileged in the grand scheme of things, you relate, right? You understand why people are asking these questions. But when it comes down to it, you know, when I was a kid, and, you know, all I could do is go to the library and look up PBS, the public broadcasting station with an antenna. Space exploration gave me hope. It, it made me feel like there was something beyond myself out there that I could participate in and I could wonder and I could get this natural curiosity. And by diving into an interest in space exploration, I learned the most important thing that I ever have in my life, and it's how to question things, mm. how to think abstractly and how not to let other people form my opinions. And so space exploration brings so many benefits beyond the typical things that you'll hear about technology and, and medical endeavors that have been funded by space exploration with astronauts in the ISS or whatever it might be. But I think more simply than that is we need something to push us forward as a humanity. And when we landed that rover on Mars in 2020, or when we launched and then we landed in the middle of the pandemic, and I saw people from all over the world mm -hmm. saying, great job, and this is amazing. It's like, it's that positivity that you need. And so while it's not gonna solve the problems of the world, and we have many, mm. it might give us the right motivation as to why we need to take care of the earth and the people around it. Awesome. And Christina, what, what are some things that you want the general public to know? So one of the things I'm super passionate about is trying to communicate how creative the engineering and science process could be. And Ruth, I'm so fascinated about the amount of creativity that you have in being able to make this beautiful song spaceship. I can't tell you how hauntingly beautiful that is and how if I had that song while I was building Perseverance, I feel like I would just feel understood because all of the sacrifice that goes into building a spaceship by your loved ones, by your family members and yourself, it's it really hit home. Yeah. And so one of the things, too, is that in order to make these complex, creative missions, you need to have that side of the brain, right? How to bring things together in abstract ways. And so I'm really curious what your creative process is. How do you get out of that headspace? Because I think engineers could definitely learn from you. Yeah. No, I hear you. I, I feel you when you talk about, you know, the sacrifice it takes and the commitment and the focus. I think, I mean, it's not the same, but I can kind of draw a comparison with writing my album and stuff like that and, and creating that. I think for me, in, in terms of like, the inspiration to write and how I write, it's its different a lot. When I first started, it was, like I said, I, I it was very like storytelling and I would just sit there and like try to write a song. And now I think I kind of just live my life and go about my life and wherever inspiration hits, I, I write. And I always say there's no moment that's too small or too big for a song. And you could just be walking in the street, run into someone and that inspires something in you or laying in the grass, looking up at the sky that, you know, it, it can be anything. And so 
I think for me, it's it's also become just a real form of therapy and, and, and way to just put my feelings that are sometimes hard to verbalize to others into some sort of form and then put it out in the world and hope that someone connects with it, like in, in the way that you have that always means the most to me when something that, you know, I wrote, someone else can understand that. And if, even if we don't know each other, we have this way of getting each other through a song. So I think that's always so cool. Well wow. said. Um, this has been so cool. I've been looking forward to this for a while. So this is great. Yeah. Thank you for having us. And it was so awesome to meet you as well, Christina, and hear you talk. That was that was super dope for sure. And you have a fan because if if I loved Spaceship, I'm going to download <laughs> all your music after this. I'm so Appreciate excited. Keep that. doing what you're doing. Thank I love you. it. And uh, you might have some new fans at JPL as well. Love it. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Be sure to check out the deluxe edition of Ruth's latest album, Moments in Between, available everywhere. And you can stay up to date with Christina's work on Twitter at Estrellas y Café. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and brought to you with support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram, media by Otavio Media and Bailey Constis, and press by TCB Public Relations. Special thanks to Thing New York and Mark Petrovich for their help with today's episode. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening.